I think one of the character traits I admire most in another person is the ability to fully throw themselves into something they're passionate about. And I'm not just talking about the normal levels of fandom or interest either. I mean the people that find an interest and set out to understand it at the most mechanical level. You've met these people before. The ones who mention a new interest in cooking, and then whenever you pass them a few months later, they can cook you a full high-end four-course meal. Or someone who gets interested in the guitar, and they make it their goal to be the next Jack White. I also know that some people may say that I should have used Eric Clapton there. Uh, no disrespect to him, I've just always been a big fan of Jack White and the White Stripe, so that's where I went. There are a lot of reasons that people may do this. Curiosity is certainly a big driver, but I don't think that that fully explains it. It's more than curiosity, sometimes bordering perhaps on an obsession. There are those among us who just want and need to know, and I love that. I love reading about their passions, hearing about them, and talking about them. My guest this week is somebody who has made an incredibly successful career out of learning and sharing, and I promise you that I cannot fully do her work justice. I present to you one of the more interesting conversations that I've had, and I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have been able to speak with her, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. I'll warn everyone at the top, just like always, uh, the show does talk about death, so please be mindful as you listen. Thank you all for continuing to stay with me and enjoy the show, and without further ado, top in. Welcome to our last mail. I'm your host, Andrew, and my guest this week is Lauren Kessler. Lauren is a narrative nonfiction writer who specializes in invisible subcultures, and her work has touched on such topics as maximum security prisons, the world of ballet, and the lives of those with Alzheimer's. In addition to her work as an author, Lauren has done work within prisons, running a writing group for lifers, as well as acting as a mentor. She also teaches storytelling for social change at the University of Washington, as well as writing workshops for the Forum for Journalism and Media. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for inviting me. No, it's my, it's, it really is my pleasure. Um, I, I, I'll call myself out here. I have guests on this show that it still sometimes blows my mind that they would take the time to talk with me. Uh, you are firmly in that camp now, and I just want to say thank you. I am I am really very happy that you're here. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today and to hear your story. And excited maybe is an odd choice of words, but it's the one I'm going to go with. Well, I'm thrilled to be here to uh, have a conversation with you. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll jump in. The you know the podcast talks about grief and loss, uh, and that's why I reached out to you. Um, I heard your story recently uh, where you talked about your mother, and I know that. If I did my research correctly, her passing happened a little over 20 years ago, right? I think that's probably right. It feels uh, amazing that it would be 20 years ago, but I think you're correct. Yeah. So can you tell me about your mother? <laughs> uh, well, I shall try. I will first say that she came from a, a long line of long-lived women. Yeah. 
she died. She, I think she was 77 when she died. Her, her mother, my grandmother, was 94. My great-grandmother was 102. And I don't know about the, the one after that. Um, but the women in, on her side of the uh, family lived long lives. And I think to her expectation and everybody's expectation is she would be one of those. And she was not. Yeah. Um, she was a healthy woman until she um, got Alzheimer's. And, and uh, that's nobody dies from Alzheimer's. You die from something else. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's how she went. And she went way earlier than anybody expected. Um, she was a woman of her time, meaning that she defined herself mostly by her family and by her volunteer work and what she did for others. She was a talented, a very talented artist, a clothes designer. She worked a little bit as a clothes designer. Um, she was a fabulous cook, and we are talking about food here yeah. so that that was one of her that was her language of love was food so i grew up in a household um where dinner was where everybody sat down for dinner uh at and with napkins and i mean in a way that a lot of times my own family doesn't <laughs> um and the the food was wonderful so she spoke fluent french um and I don't exactly know why, but she did. Uh, she spoke a bit of Italian. And what else about her? She got dressed to go to the grocery store, which I don't think is unusual. I mean, um, like I get dressed out of my pajama pants to go <laughs> to the grocery store. So, but she actually put on uh, a skirt and heels to go out which I do believe was part of her generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, there, there's a lot there that I find interesting. Um, I, I'll, I'll say I read the, the essay that you wrote about her on your website. I will link that in the show notes because it is, it was a really good read. It really resonated for me because a lot of what you said in that, um, that essay reminded me a bit of my grandmother. Um, the, the, the one thing you said there that I want to ask about, so it sounds like you didn't eat growing up so much as you dined. Is that correct? <laughs> that, that is a great distinction. Yes, we dined. Yes. I Let me ask you this. Is that something that you still do now? Is that something you you appreciate now that you're you're an adult? Oh, I absolutely appreciate it. I I love to plate food. I love what food looks like on a plate. Yeah. Um I'm I'm a good cook, uh possibly not as good as my mother's, but um yeah, I that that is something that I grew up with and something that I continue with my own family. And even um, now my I have three kids and they're out of the house. Uh, and I sort of parenthetically about grief, my husband died two years ago. So, so I only mention that. <laughs> I only mention that because I make dinner for myself on a plate every night at home. And it's not a sad thing. It's a happy thing. Yeah. I, I love to sit down. Uh, I, I love. I, I think solo dining is a nice thing. I like to do that for myself. So yes, I, I give my mother uh, props for that. Uh, you know, it's 
you say you like the way that food looks on the plate. I, I joke with my wife about this a lot that, um, you know, we eat with our eyes first, right? I mean, the idea of something looking good on a plate to me is not ridiculous. I, I, I love it whenever we played something up at home. We've been had times where we, we make dinner and we played it all up and like, oh my God, it actually looks really good. Like we've had to kind of stop and admire it before. <laughs> it's I, when you think of people who eat out of paper bags on their lap in their car, yeah. that's a whole part of eating that, I mean, it's calories in and maybe it's nutritious. I doubt yeah. that, but whatever. It's the whole thing that they're missing of what it looks like, you know, enjoying it with your eyes first. You're yeah. right. I, you know, and, and I think there's a time and a place for the, cause I, I'm guilty of this, you know, too. There, there's a time and a place for the, uh, the brown bag in your car, but like <laughs> being able to just sit down and look at your dish and just think like, wow, that looks good. Like it just, it, you get more excited for it. Um, they're really, I say it jokingly, but there really is a difference between eating something, like you said, for calories and actually dining on something and having an experience, you know, and I might sound, um, I might sound like I'm full of crap saying that, but I, I don't care. I, it really does to me. It makes a difference to, you know, be able to sit down and it's been well thought out and there's been care put into it, especially when you're doing it for others. I agree. I mean, I think, first of all, it's a privilege yes. for those of us who, have the money and the time to do that. Um, but many people do have both the money and the time and don't do that for themselves. And I, I feel bad because it's, it's part of life. Food is what connects, connects us to family, connects us to culture. It is a, just a language that we can all speak and to miss out that on that whole part of what it what it looks like, what it smells like, the whole ritual yeah. of it is, is, is sad. It's too bad. It is. And, you know, it's, it, to me, I've always said, uh, I'm a firm believer that one of the best ways to appreciate another culture is to eat their food, right? Absolutely. Um, it's also, it's a great way to, to join a family, you know, becoming a part of my, my in-laws family or my wife becoming a part of our family. That was a great way to do it is like, it's going to happen over food. It's going to happen at a dinner table. Um, it, every we we have these different rituals and ways of doing things culturally but i think even when you get down to a family you have your own rituals and ways of, of eating you know some families it's going to be loud and there's going to be a lot of yelling over one another to eat some <laughs> is very prim and proper how was your day tell me about it but it's a great way to you know ingrain yourself and learn more about a community no matter how big or small uh agreed i also think that <clears throat> excuse me my favorite this is kind of strange, but my favorite part of being of traveling internationally, which I do uh, a bit, is not going to museums, but going to grocery stores. I love going to grocery stores. They're organized differently. The money is different. The measuring is different. You have to kind of you learn a lot about the culture. You can overhear people talking, and the food there. I mean, the the groceries themselves are different. And it, to me, it's much more interesting than going to an art museum. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I appreciate an art museum. But yeah, I, I'm i a food guy at the, at the end of the day. So I would be, I would love to be just dropped in, in the middle of a grocery store. Let me, what do your snacks look like? What if, What is the meat section, the cheese? Let me see what the cheese section <laughs> looks like. Let me, let me go through. Oh, yeah. Cheese section. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and I would say for anyone too, if you, if you can't travel internationally, I mean, there are always international grocery stores 
in your area and if you have a chance to just go it's it's a it's a small part of that but just still it's it's just interesting mm-hmm. to see what other people have access to and you know as part of their just like the, what, what are their staples yes yeah i actually got to go to an asian uh, market this past weekend um, we were looking for dumplings for the super bowl uh my wife and i we do a thing every year where uh, whenever we watch the Super Bowl, whatever teams are in the game, we try to get something from a, you know, something that that area is known for food wise to kind of represent both teams. Uh, and it's just the three of us, my wife, my daughter and myself, but we have to try to make it fun. And the way we make it fun, what's what's something good we can eat? That is such a cool idea. Huh? So did you have what's Kansas City known for? Uh, R- uh Barbecue? Yeah. No, ribs? Well, no, we yeah. did ribs for them last year. So this year we did burn-ins. Um, I got them from a local barbecue place. Uh, and then for San Francisco, you know, I did some research. I spoke to some some folks who lived from who lived in San Francisco or from there. Uh, one thing I heard was sourdough bread's a big thing there, you know, so you could do deli sandwiches mm. or like dim sum. So we did some dumplings. Uh, full transparency, I was just excited that Baltimore didn't go in. I don't like crab or crab cakes. I... I <laughs> So I just, I, you know, it would have been difficult to do it for them, but you know, it's just, it's something that we do to make it fun. I think that's great. I mean, if I cared about the Super Bowl, which I don't, <laughs> I might do that next year. Yeah. Well, here, so here's the thing. My, our daughter, she doesn't care about football either, but I remember her yesterday and this, this is the kind of thing, this is why stuff like that. It means so much to me is multiple times. She said, this is fun. And she's seven. So anything that's outside of the ordinary is fun to her, but the intentionality behind what we did and her recognizing it and just recognizing that this is fun and being able to, to articulate that in the moment, that meant a lot to me. And it's the kind of thing I hope that, you know, she remembers when she's older is she's not going to remember the game or care about that probably, but she can remember like, Hey, this is a fun thing we did as a family and it was a little bit different. That's what I'm hoping she remembers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She will. Now, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the food, uh, some more in a moment. Um, but, you know, talking about your mother, you know, you said that she was a woman of her generation. Um, you you touched on this in the essay. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about is, as I read the essay, you know, you talk about her experiences when she was younger and becoming a mother and having a family. And you said it yourself, that woman of a generation. Um, I told you during my, my grandmother's service, I kind of had the same sense that, you know, it was more... It was less about her as an individual and more about who she was to everyone else um, and the role she served, which I, I get. At the same time, it did feel like it was uh, – I just felt like it didn't fully represent her. Do you think part of grieving was forgiving her, though? Because it feels like in the essay it talks about um, you know, her making these choices to, to have the family and do the PTA and do all these things. Was there a level of forgiveness in there? Uh, well, forgiving her for what do you mean? What was I forgiving her Fair. for? So the sense I got was it, I mean, it almost seemed like you, you, you wish that she'd had that going out just for herself and she seemed very selfless, I guess. So I don't, I think that I wrote that essay the way that I often write books in general to teach myself and to try and understand more. 
uh, whether whatever the subject is, and in this case, my mother, I, I don't think it's a matter of forgiveness. It's um, a matter of understanding, mm. because it it seemed to me like with her talent, and she had talent, um, and with the privilege of being married to somebody who was making a living, you know, decent living, yeah. um, she could have done. She could have done a lot. She was a dreamer who didn't know how to operationalize her dreams. Mm. And I, I learned that. I mean, some people say, what, you know, what, what do you learn from your parents? And most people will remark something really great, like, and, and this is kind of a negative. I, I learned that that's, that's not what you want to do. If it's great to have dreams, but you have to have the commitment and this confidence and the bravery to go after it. I don't know why she didn't. And I never understood when I was, not when I was growing up, but later in my late teens and when I was in college, why she made the choices that she made. But it was not really a matter of forgiving her. It was trying to understand the strictures of that life, what she felt was culturally possible for her, which is a much smaller box to live in than uh, other generations that came after her. Did she ever, in her later years, did she ever, you know, talk about, you know, I guess opportunities that were available to women, you know, as she got older? I mean, you know, you went on into the world, but, you know, you become a successful author, educator, you know, what did she, what did she think about, you know, women who came after her being, you know, having that, I guess, focus and ability to go out and do these things? We actually never talked about that. <laughs> I think that part of her might have been um, uh, jealous is not the word that I mean, but there's some amount of uh, envy yeah. or uh, I, you know, too bad I was born when I was born because had I been born later, other things would have happened. I, I'm not sure, but we, um, we, I moved to I went away to college when I was young, 17, and it was uh, far, it was relatively far away. And then I moved even farther away. And I spent almost all of my adult life on the West Coast. And I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, And I had, so we we did not see each other all that often. And we, this is before social media. And um, so we didn't stay in that kind of intimate touch that families can stay um, and that maybe do now. Uh, So much of what she might have been thinking about in her later years is a mystery to me. Really don't know. So I'd come home for a visit and we would have a visit and there would be just sort of superficial talk and lots of good food and then I'd leave. You know, I will say, you know, I know you said that uh, jealousy is not the right word, maybe envy. I I think that that's a very human emotion though. And it, I don't know if you if you ever felt this, but to me, I think learning that your parents are humans and the, everything that that comes with—the good, the the bad—you know, the fact that they can are capable of amazing things, that they also can be flawed individuals. Um, it feels like that's just part of it, and I still remember early on—maybe not early on—but I still remember the times that I learned that my parents are human and how that kind of rocked me a little bit. 
um i don't know that's that's just what that makes me think of is that it, it's just it's a humanizing thing it's a really big moment in an adult child's life yeah um where you realize that uh they they were and are your parents but they're actually people and they you know and they do what people do and all of their life was not their parent uh, not being a parent i remember as a kid um and i I think this is just really common. I would leave home in the morning and my mother would be there and she'd give me breakfast. And then I'd come home in the afternoon. It never, ever occurred to me to think about what she did when I was gone. She just existed. She sort of ceased to exist. Uh, She would ask me what my day was like and and maybe I would find out about her day. Who knows if a 12 year old comes home and says so what did you do today mom probably not um but then to realize later uh what did she do where did she go what was she thinking was she lonely and i think the answer was yes she was lonely did she miss a creative outlet how and what did what became creative outlets for her certainly cooking was one of them and uh, and menu planning and all of that stuff, but also she was a painter, uh, a oil painter. So she had an easel up all the time, and she painted quite a bit. And she um, designed and made all my clothes, which at the time was a complete embarrassment to me because I wanted clothes with labels yeah. from places <laughs> that everybody knew, and not handmade for you by your mom which was the labels that she put in um so yeah yeah you're right i mean the it it really will rock you um just realizing like oh my god my 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 parents were people they were humans they had days outside of just the time that they were around me and i think the thing that really drove that point home for me was becoming a father myself and realizing like Mm. To, to, for her entire life, I am a father, and that's that's all I ever am, and, and which is I love being a dad, but it is definitely um, it's uh, there can be some some crisis of self, I guess, you know, coming to terms with, with what that means. Um, yeah, I hear you. Know. I will say that it is still cool to me though. Whenever she finds out things that I've done in my life, like she knows I do a podcast, she doesn't really know what it's about because of me telling talking. I've had to have the conversations with her about what grief is and loss um, as a seven-year-old, mm. but I think uh, telling her about, you know, I talk to people about grief and food. <laughs> it's going to be a hard conversation. Yeah, sure, Dad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you know, anytime she finds out about something I've done before in the past and she's like, oh, my God, that's – so it, she just gets surprised. And I'm like, okay, I still got some tricks up my sleeve. I can still – I don't know how many years of being able to surprise you have got, but I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> um well, cherish those yes, years. Yes. Well, I do want to talk about food. You, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, that she was an amazing cook. Um, in the essay, I, I read about some of the great things that she made. Uh, the, a really cool one you told me about uh, when we were communicating before our interview was about the, the trips that she would make to get special ingredients. But can you talk to me, like, what kind of food did she make? What did it mean to her? You've talked about plating and menu creation. Talk to me about the food she made. Well, she was a very early adopter of Julia Child before before hardly anybody heard of Julia Child. So she was making that, those kinds of recipes. She liked French yeah. food. 
um, she um, loved Italian food and she also made Chinese food. <laughs> uh, those were the three cuisines that I remember. Uh, the thing that I told you about earlier was we lived in, uh, in New York in an area that was not yet suburban. It would be suburban later, but it was pretty much uh, some raw developments in the potato fields of Long Island. And if you wanted anything, there wasn't like, um, there weren't shopping centers. I mean, it was still, it was still country. So, uh, and also you just couldn't go to your neighborhood store and get hoisin sauce. They, they would look at you like, what the heck is hoisin sauce? So she would get on the Long Island Railroad and go into New York City and take a subway to Chinatown and get ingredients like five spice powder and um, hoisin sauce at, at Chinese grocery stores and come home and make that food, um, which was pretty extraordinary. I, I don't know that I thought of it as extraordinary at the time, but thinking back, I mean, I could just go to my neighborhood store into the, and, and it's all there. Uh, and, and she couldn't, um, she, so six nights of the week, she made, uh, my father couldn't boil water, so he was not in the kitchen at all. Um, one night a week, we went out to, to a restaurant, not a fancy place, but that was her break that she yeah. got. And six nights a week, it was her responsibility, all the menu planning and everything. Um, and we were uh, omnivorous. I am not omnivorous now, um, but we had beef and pork and chicken and um, fish and, and and occasionally something that was a vegetarian. And we rarely had the same meat two days in a row. I mean, like not two beef dishes, yeah. whatever they were. Oh, veal, she also, which is something I can't possibly think about. But she used to make a veal scallopini, which was amazing where you go to the butcher and you get veal and veal is a little baby cow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't even talk about that, but it's, that's what she did. And then you pound it out so thin that you can almost see through it. And I don't know what the, the mixture is that she put inside of it, whatever it was wonderful. And then you roll it up in a, uh, you roll it up. So it's like a log, yeah. but a, but a pretty looking log. And then, you get thread and a needle and you stitch stitch it up so that it holds together and then it simmers in some magic sauce that I couldn't even tell you about. That was probably my favorite meal that she made. She didn't make it that often because it's because it's quite time consuming, but it was lovely. I have never made it. I've made a lot of the stuff that she made, but I just can't buy veal. I, I, I don't blame you. I uh I don't know that I'm 36. I don't know that I've ever had veal at this point too. Um, I just, I, I eat beef kind of rarely anyway. It's, you know, pro, you know, predominantly a uh, chicken, turkey, uh, pork, but I just, I don't think I could do it. It, it sounds amazing, but it, it was. <laughs> I, so, you know, you said that you think that, um, some of her creative outlet was the cooking and it sounds like that really, that was the experience you had. I mean, cause the, the fact that she was at this time going, the amount of travel that she would do just to get some ingredients to make Chinese food, where, you know, 
where was she exposed to Chinese food that she said, I want to make this and I'm going to do it? Ah, well, there was an incredible restaurant in the town that I grew up in, or next to the town I grew up in, that still exists today that's called Quan Ming. And this was very often where we ate out, when we ate out that Sunday night. And it was a family-owned Chinese restaurant. Um, it had been there. Uh, it's probably been in existence now for 50 years. Uh, so generations of that family. Yeah. Really, really good food. And so I think that we all discovered Chinese food um, then because she it wouldn't have been part of her upbringing and certainly not my dad's. So yeah. Quan Ming, for any of you who live in suburban Long Island, in the town of Wanta. I'll say it again because they're wonderful. Quan Ming. Yeah. If I ever make it up that way, I need to, I've, I've been to Long Island uh, once before and th that was just on a mission to get pizza. But if I make it back, <laughs> look, I, I'll, I'll be completely honest. We were doing the tourist thing. We're like, okay, we're in New York. We have to get pastrami on rye. Um, I have to get a hot dog, which I never, I never did get. And then I have to get pizza uh, and bagels, but Ah, well, I think that's perfect. That's a great way to see New York. I, I, I didn't leave disappointed. I'll say that. <laughs> but no, I, I love that though that she, um, it, I mean, it sounds like you all had a pretty adventurous um, palate, I guess, growing up. And the fact that she, she found that she loved it and then she just doubled down on making it herself. I'm also curious, you said that she loved French food, but she also, she learned French. Did the French, what came first, the learning French or French food? Uh, so she um, worked in New York City, which is where she lived when she uh, got out of when she was going to college. During the sort of the end of World War II, the uh, there were things called French canteens, and it was run by I think the U.S. government or USO or something like that, a servicemen's organization, and French soldiers went there. It's really confusing to me, so I'm not making a whole lot of sense, but she hung out at, <laughs> at French canteens, and she had a French boyfriend um, who I, I have heard from my, not from her, because she didn't talk about her private life, but from my favorite aunt, that she was actually set to marry this guy, and uh, toward the very end of the war, he died. And uh, so she did not marry him, but um, I think that's where her love of the French language uh, came from and possibly French food. She did not go to France. Um, my parents didn't have the money for international travel until quite late. Um, and so the first place they went was France. Um, but this was at least 10 years after she was making really good French food at home. Wow. And so you said that's not something that she ever went into detail with you? Uh, her personal love life? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, you know, again, it goes back to our parents are real people, real full people. And yeah, it's, it's I guess there still has to be some mysteries, right? <laughs> I, I am happy that I don't know about my mother's love life. I, Frankly. Yeah, I, I won't lie. I can't blame you. Um, <laughs> I can't blame you. I, my parents have been together for almost 50 years. And so I'm right there with you. 
<laughs> Nuff yeah. said. Yes, long, long silence yeah, we'll there. Go with okay. That. No, so so she did the French food, the Chinese food. Was there any dish that you um other than the Ville Scalopini that just like really stands out as like that was her dish? Uh, well, again with the veal, sorry, she made a veal parmesan, which I, I now make as chicken mm. parmesan. So veal parmesan was really good. She made wonderful spaghetti and meatballs. I mean, there was really nothing that she didn't make well. I I don't eat, I, I, I eat mostly fish, and I do occasionally eat poultry. So the, a, a meal that I, that I remember with... Uh, as wonderful that I would never make now was a uh, pork loin. I think it is roast pork loin yeah. and with, with applesauce, which she made of course from real apples, not from a jar. Uh, and that was pretty good. Now I make apples from, I make applesauce from real apples in my orchard. So that's not, you know, so, so much of a stretch, but the pork is a stretch. Fair enough. The uh, the applesauce is that something that you do because she did it? Uh, no, I mean I, I I think that maybe she normalized it, but I live I live on five acres and I have uh, an orchard a nine uh, tree orchard, um, and five of them are apple trees of different kinds. So you got to do something <laughs> with the apples. You know, fair enough. That's uh, I I can't say I blame you. I. I do want to talk a little bit more about the grief side of it. Um, so, you know, you, you know, you, you did mention, um, you know, her passing, you mentioned that it wasn't, you know, she didn't pass from Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's, you know, came in later at the end of her life. I know I talked with you about another guest I had on the show, Jennifer, who her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she talked to me at the time about pre-grief or this idea of, grieving what she knew was going to happen. You know, can you talk, did you have an experience with, you know, mm -hmm. that pre-grief and, you know, how did you handle the grief after she passed? That is such an interesting question. Um, I think it might be harder for those family, for, for any family member, if what the person is suffering is dementia and Alzheimer's, then, for example, cancer or heart disease, um, because there's no, I mean, there's not like a, a diagnosis. If you have an incurable cancer, for example, a doctor could say, I think you have three months to live, yeah. or we'll try this treatment and I, and Based on the statistics, you can probably live another five years. For for Alzheimer's, um, think about how long Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, probably twenty years. So there, there's so there's really not that kind of pre grief, or there wasn't for me because I didn't know. I mean, she had she had this thing, this disease that changed who she was. And it was just there. Um, would it be there for three months, three years, 15 years? I don't know. The, the grief was, um, the grief was about the person that she no longer was, not that she was going to die. I didn't really think about the, di the dying part. 
Um, and one of the reasons that I wrote the uh, a, a book that was originally titled Dancing with Rose, uh, Finding Life in the Land of Alzheimer's, and it's now in paperback as Finding Life in the Land of Alzheimer's. The reason that I wrote that, and it was seven years after my mother died, was because when was for this reason when she was ill all I could see was what she wasn't all right and when I and to write this book I took a job uh, as a bottom of the rung caregiver at an Alzheimer's facility so I was taking care of other people's mothers and other people's fathers and grandparents and and guess what? I actually saw who they were because I, I wasn't burdened by um, their past. I didn't know them. I only knew who they were in front of me. And they were challenging or funny or, you know, they loved to dance or they loved chocolate chip cookies or whatever it was that made them human. I saw it. And I missed that with my mother. I didn't see that with my mother for two reasons. One is because I was thinking only about what wasn't there. Uh-huh. And two is, uh, you know, as a, as a, you're, you're wondering about care, like, should she stay? When, when should she go to a facility? Is the facility good? How many times am I visiting? You know, what's my dad doing about this? And so there's all of the logistical stuff yeah. that um, stands in the way of or protects you from the emotional stuff. Yeah, it's um I don't have the vocabulary to express how difficult it is to see somebody that you love suffer and go through that. Um you know, and, and I think the way you phrased it that was perfectly I mean, you, you can only see really what's not there anymore. Um you know, when my when my grandmother when she had it, when she was suffering that It's it's such a hard feeling because I mean you you love the because the, the person you love is right there in front of you but that's it's not all of them it's it's there there's something missing and it's just it's challenging and I think the way you approached writing the book by doing the actually just going and and working with these individuals I think that it sounds to me like that was a way for you not only to research the book you're writing but also to help process a bit. Is that accurate? Pen- it was penance. It, it was penance for the do- for the daughter that I didn't know how to be at the time, so that I could be that daughter for somebody else or that granddaughter for somebody else, because I, you know, it's I I discovered in working with people who um, in caring for people who have Alzheimer's that we are more than the sum of our remembered past. We are more than that. And we don't lose ourself when we lose our memory. And I saw that with other people. I was blinded to that when it was happening in front of me because, well, because it was happening in yeah. front of me. And because I, I yeah. So um, I, I did, I wrote the book. I, I, and I immersed myself in that way, both to learn about the real life that's lived by people with this illness and what I missed um, and maybe to help others who, um, you know, who, who might not do the same thing.
things that I did <laughs> who might not only look at what's not there um, and who might not, well, who might not constantly quiz their relatives about what they remember yeah. and, and try and get them to remember things. It's, it's a cruelty to do that. Yeah. Uh, but it's, what, it's kind of what you want to do because you had a life together and you want to talk about that life. And instead, you should just make up chocolate chip cookies and listen to the music that you think they would like and hold their hand. And that would be just perfect. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if you've uh, if you've had people reach out to you because of that book and that perspective, but I think that's a re really powerful message of how to try to approach it because, you know, you talk about the, the it's kind of cruel trying to get them to remember something. I, I think the cruelty is, it's not intentional, but it's for them because it just, it frustrates them. And then also for yourself because you are just, you're wanting something that's yeah, it's, not it's, there. Yeah. Absolutely it is. And, and in the moment you sometimes can't help yourself. So yeah, people did, that, that book came out a while ago and I have continued to get um, responses from people who say, I mean, even now, uh, I, I came across your book and my grandmother, mother, aunt, whatever we're talking about has Alzheimer's and thank you. It's helped me. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's what I wanted so that people could be smarter than I was. Yeah. I will, I will say personally, it feels like you are being very hard on yourself, but I'm also, I, I'm not going to fault you because that it's a, it's a, difficult, horrible experience. I'm just being honest. That's all. I'm not being hard on myself. I'm being factual. Fair. I am a non, I am a nonfiction <laughs> writer, so I'm being factual. Fair, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Lauren, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me. I, I told you earlier, there's, there's a question I always like to ask people. And I've gone through a couple of questions, but this is my, always my favorite question to ask somebody is that, if you had a chance with your mother to have one more meal with her, what would you want to have? So I knew you were going to ask that question and it's really hard because there are so many delicious meals she made. So I'm going to switch. I'm going to, I'm going to tweak that response a little okay. bit. What I would love is anything she wanted to make. If she let me in the kitchen and and let me work next to her to be her sous chef. She never let me in the kitchen. I would observe, but I never helped, ever helped. And so if I had one last chance, I don't care what she made. If I could be by her side and cutting up the vegetables or stirring the sauce or some anything like that, that would be that would be perfect. Yeah. And the meal itself is kind of secondary to the experience of making it with her. Yeah. I um, I, I know I th I think I told you that there's no right or wrong answer, but I think that's the right answer. <laughs> it's I mean really it's <laughs> oh good no I mean but really it's you know obviously the food is the food's important but I mean just it's the the being with somebody and this is why too I'm a big proponent of you know the thing that somebody you care about makes that they make better than anyone else in the world try to find out how to make it while you can. Um, get the recipe, write it down, watch them make it, make it, have them show you. Um, I know easier said than done sometimes, but I'm a big proponent of that. No, that is, 
Yep, that is a very that's a very good idea. And all you listeners out there, do that. Yeah. Well, so Lauren, I um I appreciate you coming on. Uh, appreciate you sharing so much with me. Uh, can you tell the audience where they can learn more about you and some of the things that you're working on? Absolutely, I can. Uh, so I have a uh, all-encompassing author website, and it is just my name, Lauren Kessler, L-A-U-R-E-N-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. The .com part is not that I'm selling anything on this website. It's just .com is what people, it's just an easier thing. So on this site, you will find my books. I've written 15 books, um, uh, commercially published books, and you'll find excerpts and reviews and, uh, should you want to, ways of purchasing. Um, Also, the essays that I have written. And on every Wednesday, which this is a Wednesday that you're listening to this, if you're listening to it in real time, um, I post an original essay on that site, laurenkessler.com, in a section called Lauren Chronicles. Um, As this Wednesday is going to be uh, Valentine's Day, this is going to be something about love, of course. I'm not sure what. Um, Not love of food, (laughs) because that's not, but something else. Um, So I am, as you said at the top of the show, I'm a narrative nonfiction writer. And the narrative part is storytelling. And the nonfiction part is I don't make it up. So I'm, I'm not a novelist, but what I hope is when people read my books, they think they're reading a novel. They're encountering people. Um, they're, they're learning about uh, this character development. There's plot, there's dialogue, there's scenes. Uh, there's all of those things that you find in a novel, but these are real people. Um, so I often immerse myself in their worlds to to bring those worlds to light. You mentioned the ballet book. So I joined a ballet company (laughs) for the Alzheimer's book. I took a job at an Alzheimer's facility. I've written two books about incarceration and and the re-entry of people who've been long time incarcerated. And I um, ran a writing group in a maximum security prison for three, a little bit more than three years to I mean, both to help the writers, uh, to, to help the inmates, and also to learn about their their world. The book that I'm working on now, um, and I've the manuscript is not due for another few months yet, is called Everything Changes Everything. And it is about love and loss and wounds and healing and the 500-mile solo hike I took across northern Spain, the Camino de Santiago, to process all of that. Oh wow! So I, I'm just gonna say this. I am gonna link up everything in the show notes. I cannot wait to read that book when that comes out. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm very excited to read that, um, Lauren. I am so also so appreciative of you taking the time to talk with me and share. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you. That was a great conversation. And now I'm really hungry. (laughs) That's right. You're on the West Coast and I think I've held you up from dinner. So I really do appreciate it. (laughs) Good speaking with you, Andrew. 
Thank you again to Lauren for joining me this week. Again, I'm just such a fan of what she does and how she approaches it. The way she approaches nonfiction and really writes it so that you feel that you're there with these people. It's such a level of respect for real human beings. And the way she tells her stories is nothing short of incredible. In the show notes, I'm going to provide links to her website as well as social media, as well as the essay that we referenced in our conversation. I found it incredibly powerful. I would just really encourage you go read it. Um, I think you will all enjoy it. I certainly did. Uh, just as a note, you can click on the different books on her site and you can find links to your preferred book retailer. I would just ask you if you're a fan of the show, if you're a fan of Lauren, I think just one favor you could do for us. If you're going to buy, try to support local. That being said, grab one of her books. I think she's an amazing author. I think you will too. If you enjoy what I do, you can subscribe to Our Last Mill wherever you listen to podcasts. I would also love if you would please take the time to rate and review so that other people can find this podcast or share with them. I always feel so awkward with the self-promotion. I'm not good at it. Um, so I really need your help. <laughs> I don't like to tell people I do this as much as I should. So please help me spread the word. Uh, this is something, as I'm sure you can tell, I am very passionate about. If you want to follow Our Last Mill, you can follow on social media at Our Last Mill Pod or visit OurLastMill.com. If you're ever interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have a question, or if you want to tell me you love it or you hate it, um, you can always reach out at ourlastmillpod at gmail.com. You can also go to ourlastmill.com, click on the button, share your story at the top. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be back in a couple weeks for another one. Until then, as always, please take care of yourselves, and please go share a meal with someone you care about.